This is Neon Radio, episode 152 with Michael Roderick. Welcome to Neon Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, fashion and lifestyle photographer for today's top brands, performers, and game changers. On this podcast, we explore the body, mind, and soul of the creative entrepreneur, bringing you inspiring guests to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. Neonites, welcome to another episode of Neon Radio, and that is spelled N-I-O-N. You can go to neonradio.com to learn all about the podcast, search through the archives, and all that good stuff. You can also go to neonlife.com slash quiz, take the the 10-question quiz, and we'll serve you up some free content to help you out in your creative journey wherever you are at. So... Don't forget to go over to join the community also as well to connect with other creatives. That's neonlife.com slash community. I'm very excited to share with you today's guest, Mr. Michael Roderick, who went from a high school teacher to a Broadway producer in under two years. And today we talk about how he did that, but not only what he did in that, but he talks about how to secure funding with investors, especially for an artist. And he's got a very good combination of experience in the arts and entrepreneurship, which led him to starting an incubator program to teach artists about building their own businesses, something that we're all very attuned to here. And what the podcast is all about is being a creative entrepreneur. And that means making money with your art and creating and optimizing the lifestyle that surrounds that. So I was also talking to to Michael on on this podcast about how to become a referable brand. And that's what his next endeavor is and his next, what he's working on research-wise. And he's coming up with a course around that to teach artists and brands and entrepreneurs how to be referable. Because as you know, everybody is from trying to stand out, everybody starts to look the same these days. So So much digital noise out there that standing out is really now about becoming referable. And what does that mean to be somebody that people refer all the time? I mean, obviously we know that recommendations personally from our friends are the the best way to find things. And so we break down on this podcast what that takes, what it takes to become referable. We also talk about how to build connections with investors and why not to call them investors and really kind of break down what it is that they're looking for when they want to invest into an art project, a Broadway play, or whatever it is. And I think it's great advice for any artists out there looking to fund their projects. We talk about much, much more, but really great episode. And let's just dive in. So I bring to you the one, the only Mr. Michael Roderick. What is up, everyone? Today, we've got Michael Roderick on the podcast today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So Michael is a very unique individual, and he is a super connector and a relationship builder. He's got lots of lots of great stories and advice, and we're just going to meander today. So I, uh, I'm excited to have this conversation 
We've talked a lot about the times that you and I have hung out. We talked a lot about being a, a recommendable and remarkable brand and building relationships. And, you know, this podcast is around creative entrepreneurship. So I think your, his, your background in theater and raising money and building those types of relationships is very much uh, something that people would want to hear about today. So let's just get started. And with, uh, you know, I want to hear a little bit, of, tell these guys a little bit about your story of through your Broadway and now what you're up to today and how that transitioned. Sure. So I started out as a high school English teacher and went from being a high school English teacher to a Broadway producer in under two years. And a lot of people were very curious, notably about sort of why that happened. And, and I was also really curious about what it is that causes people to kind of skip the line. Mm -hmm. So I started hosting workshops where I would simulate networking experiences and basically have people wow. act out one-on-one -on -one meetings, job interviews, and cocktail parties in much the same way that if you were to perform like an improv type of session, it would follow that same kind of model. Mm. And what I would do is I would then ask these people afterwards, how did you feel playing this particular character? So, so let's say it was a large group gathering and I said, okay, your character is the person who's jamming business cards in everybody's hands. And right. your mission is to like make sure that everybody knows you. So this person would go around acting out this scenario and then afterwards, we'd talk about it and they'd be like, wow, you know, I felt so much sort of ang anxiety about like, how could I prove myself? And now I look completely differently at those people who are just trying to jam their business cards in my hands. Now right. I'm starting to kind of understand, you know, where it comes from. So when I started noticing a lot of that stuff, I started to look for patterns. Mm. And what I like to believe is that patterns are often the precursor for frameworks. When you start to notice patterns in things, you can start to come up with theories about ways that relationships can work. Mm -hmm. So I started testing some of these frameworks and giving them to people. And as a result, a lot of the artist friends that I had, they were getting higher level opportunities in their careers. I started testing some of the stuff with my own process of raising money and reaching out to sort of higher level individuals and a lot of these things worked. Mm. So then I had to ask, okay, well, as a teacher, how do you make sure that people actually understand it? Mm -hmm. And that's where the whole referable brand concept came from. I started to realize that most people focus on the idea of differentiation and how important it is to be different from everybody else. Right. But they forget about the fact that very, very often, if somebody can't remember your ideas, if they can't share it with their friends, then it doesn't matter right. how good your stuff is. It doesn't matter mm. what you're doing if people can't actually talk about it. And that's what kind of has started to lead me into this world today. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I love this stuff. And, and that's such an interesting thing because there's so much noise in the world now and everybody's trying to be different. Right. So then mm -hmm. it kind of makes everybody the same. Yes. So yeah, I want to jump into that a little bit, but that, <laughs> let's just go back a little bit to what you did in Broadway and sure. how you help people in that space. Yeah. So basically I like looking at how an industry operates and this is something that I like to do with everything. So I, I've always loved kind of figuring out what makes people tick. I've always loved kind of looking at what are the behind the scenes. 
And one of the things that I learned about Broadway was that in essence, it was a aspect of just basically raising money. Mm. So if you want to be a Broadway producer, you raise money to make sure that shows happen. Right. Is, is the idea. And what I learned about that world was that there were tons of people who really were interested in the idea of credit. So they wanted their names to be on the show. So they would mm. go to these Broadway producers and say, I'll raise this amount of money for you, but I want this credit. I want my name on it. I want to be known as a co-producer, an associate producer, et cetera. So when I saw that, I said, okay, but I just want to learn more about raising money and get better at that. So what I did was I went to producers that I knew and that I respected. And I said, listen, I don't really care right now if my name's on anything. I just want to get better at raising money. Mm. So they gave me a ton of deal flow. I ended up with four or five shows that I could just go to people and reach out to and say, you know, is this the type of project that you'd be interested in? And because I proved myself raising money, I eventually was approached by another Broadway producer who basically said, I've seen that you can do this. I would like to offer you credit mm. on this show if you can raise, you know, this amount for the show, uh, the Scottsboro Boys. Right. And I jumped on board, did that, and had my first Broadway producing credit much, much earlier than a lot of the other folks who were around me who were still trying to sort of work towards getting in those doors with those other producers and, and becoming a co-producer. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So now how the, you know, how do, how does one find these people with money? Right. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there's, <laughs> and that's like the ambiguous question. The first step is like, how do you even like meet or find these people? And then how do you appeal to the interests of like getting them to give you money? Yeah. And how, how did you like, you know, you, you were, you had the, they get, you got the flow, you got the flows for the shows, mm -hmm. but then how did you find, how did you have that build the network to even find the people with money? Yeah. So the top question that you get is, as a Broadway producer, any panel that you sit on is how do I find investors, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's the same question that you get if you're sitting on a panel talking about startups. That's the same question that you get as an entrepreneur, right? How do I find investors? How do I find people with money? And the answer that I would always give those people who reached out to me was always the same. You stop calling them investors. You have to look at these people as individuals. You mm. have to really start to think about who is this person and what do they actually care about? And when I started, I looked at, okay, well, what are the topics of these shows? And then who are the types of people who would be interested in this type of thing? Hmm. And then I also looked at, okay, what's the financial qualification of the individual within this, you know, within this world. Right. So when you know that somebody needs to be able to write a $10,000 check, $25,000 check, $100,000 check without really being concerned about it, you don't focus on people who are in industries where that isn't a normal expense for them. You don't mm. focus on industries where people are charging $500 for what they do or $1,000 for what they do. You look at industries where people are actually generating significant amounts of capital. Right, right. So you're just like, you're just going and finding these people, then researching them essentially. So it is some researching, but the other piece that I think is probably even more important is understanding a concept known as the law of weak ties. 
Hmm. And there was a sociologist uh, by the name of Robert Granovetter who did a study of college students. And the first group of college students asked their close friends and family for jobs. And the second group asked people that they barely knew, people that they had met once or twice. And the second group outperformed the first in terms of how many people got jobs. Mm. And the reasoning behind it was that these people who were part of this person's like social circle, family members, et cetera, all of these people kind of knew about a lot of the same opportunities, knew a lot of people kind of within the same financial sphere, just everything was kind of the same. Mm. But the people who are completely outside of those circles, who were kind of off the beaten path, those were the ones who were connected to much larger opportunities. But the other really important thing, and this is something that I think we forget about, is the fact that for people who are close to us, our relationship with them is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So even if they have a direct connection to somebody who could completely change our lives, there is a part of them that worries that if they make that introduction, that it could end up going poorly and then we blame them or it could end up going well and we leave them behind. Whereas the people who are in that sort of weak ties category, they don't really know us and they don't have a lot invested in the relationship. So very often they're willing to make much, much bigger introductions and connect us to much, much bigger opportunities. So I found my first investor by reaching out to a friend of mine at the time who was still, I'm from Rhode Island. And when I was in Rhode Island and I was getting my degree in education, I used to go to schools and do like after school programs. So one of those girls who was doing that after school program, she was on Facebook in the early, early stages of (laughs) Facebook. Right. Yeah. And I reached out to her and I said, this is going to sound completely random and silly, but have you ever met anybody who has ever had an interest in investing in Broadway? And I'm like, this is just like a total, like, I have no idea whether or not this makes any sense to you. And she said, Oh, well, you know, I had a friend who produced a show for our summer theater and I think he might be interested. So she introduces me to this guy. We have lunch. I tell him about the project. I talk him through kind of all the logistics and sort of how it all works And he says, okay, I'll think about it. And then I get a call from the general manager two days later and we didn't talk money at all. And he basically was in for $25,000. Wow. And I would have had no idea, A, that that person existed, B, that that person had that kind of, that, that kind of money. Like you just, you don't know. So very, very often the mistake that I see a lot of people make when they're trying to accomplish things is that they they put all of their eggs in that like friend basket hmm. of like friends and family. It's like my friends and family will help solve, you know, solve things for me. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is when somebody doesn't know us, we have the opportunity to basically give them all of the context on who we are and what we can accomplish. They have no preconceived notions. Mm. Our best friend has seen us fall. They've seen us mess up. So if we go to them and say, you know, will you invest in my company or will you invest in my show or my project? They remember in that time that they, you know, that that they had to like drag us out of the party because we got <laughs> bombed, you know? Right, right, right. But somebody that you don't know, they're just like, well, this is interesting and you're interesting. So why don't we do this? Why don't we get involved? 
Yeah. Wow. That's huge. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So now let's take that context. How would that, how would you take these principles and apply it to uh, like another form of art? Right. Mm-hmm. So say like I wanted to create a, a book, a photo book, how, what would be the best way to go about getting somebody to fund that or sponsor it? You know, because I'm sure you have to create some sort of pitch or pitch deck. Yes that really explains the vision and, and everything of the project. And then you want to get people to buy onto that. Yeah. So the biggest mistake that I see people make specifically when it comes to somebody investing in your project is trying to convince them that the project is going to make money. Right. Because if you try to convince somebody that something's going to make money, instantly they distrust whether or not it will. Yeah. They have to come to that discovery on their own. They have to see the value of their own. The other piece that I find a lot of us forget about is that people have different things that matter to them other than money. And whatever our deficit is, whatever our challenge is, that is not necessarily the other person's challenge. Right. So a lot of the time what tends to happen is when somebody, I call this asking blinders, where basically if you are really focused on getting something and you really want somebody to like buy a photo book of yours, et cetera, what will happen is you'll spend all this time talking about the photo book. You'll spend all this time talking about the, the value of it and all right. these types of things. And you're blind to the fact that this person is not actually interested in the photo book. They're interested in something else. They're interested in something that the photo book will do for them. They're interested in some other aspect. They're interested in you as an individual. You you just, you never know unless you take the time to really kind of open up and understand. Mm. And, And what I like to say is that every single one of us has what I like to refer to as a TCM index. And that's an index of time, connections, and money. And every single one of us has a deficit or a perceived deficit in one of those three things. Ooh. So we're all Ooh. we're all struggling with this in some capacity, right? Yeah. Now the interesting thing is that the answer to solving the problem of where the deficit is is always in the other two. So if you have a deficit in money, where you are spending your time and who you're having conversations with can transform that deficit much much faster than practically anything else that you're going to do, right? If you have a deficit in connections, how you're spending your money, where you're going Mm. and how you're spending your time, what you're spending that time doing can completely change the base of connections that you have. And if you have a deficit in time, the people that you know who can do things much, much faster for you rather than you running around wasting that, you know, wasting that time and how you invest that money to give yourself back the time is how you get more time. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's so interesting. Where where did you come? Where did that theory come from? It came from I met when I was doing a lot of the building of these frameworks. I basically would meet with people on one on one sort of like coffee meetings, right? And it started in kind of the networking world of like basically there are a lot of networking groups that focus on the idea of like we'll have a one on one coffee meeting with somebody. Yeah. Right? So I took probably about 2000 of those. Uh, And it was because when I would meet people, I would have ideas of who to introduce them to. So in some cases I'd walk away with maybe 10 names of people that 
I could make introductions for. So then I'd go and I'd make all those introductions. So what would happen is then people would start introducing me as the person who knows everyone. So all of a sudden, every week, there were like 15, 20 new introductions and connections sort of wow. in, my, in my inbox. So what happened was the more that I would talk to people, the more I would realize, oh, my God, every single time the pain is landing in one of these three areas. Like, like they would describe something, but it could always go back to, is it a time problem? Is it a problem of connections where they're just not connected to the right people? Or is it a money issue? Yeah. And it wasn't until I started looking at my own challenges that I started to realize how this worked because I got to a point where, and I think a lot of us get to this point where basically everybody's kind of reaching out to you and they all want to connect with you, but nobody wants to pay you. And I, and, right. and I often refer to this as a connection rich and cash poor, where basically like everybody loves you and they want to introduce you to people, but they never want to introduce you to clients. And mm. I sort of got to this point where that was happening all the time. And I was like, okay, well, I have this massive base of connections. So what's the, you know, what's the problem? Like why, right. you know, why isn't the business doing well? And I realized, well, if I'm spending all of my time just meeting with people and just making introductions for everybody else. What am I doing for my own message? What am I doing for my own products and services? What am I doing that would actually cause anybody to want to introduce me to anybody? Right. And to want to actually pay for what, you know, for, for what I do. Absolutely. And then I flipped it. And this is really useful. If you're trying to sell something, asking yourself when you're talking to this person, what is their TCM index? Right. Because if they don't care about money, it doesn't matter how cheap you can get the thing made. But if they care about time and how long it's going to take and you're able to solve that problem, money is not even an issue for them. Mm. If they care about the fact that, so, and and this ties to a lot of the Broadway stuff yeah, uh, too that happens where basically there were people, they knew they were never going to get money back from these shows right. because it is one of the highest risk types of investments. It's, it's like going to, you know, it's like playing the lottery, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So they knew that this was a roll of the dice. Yeah. But all of these Broadway shows have celebrities in them and for 10, 25,000, $50,000 which for them was dinner with their clients. Right. Right. Yeah. They could then take their friend to an opening night party with a bunch of celebrities and look like a completely different person. Mm. So it was about that connections piece for them. It was about how they're going to look. It wasn't about whether or not they were going to make money. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the thing is like so often when we're selling our stuff, we don't take the time to figure out, well, what actually matters to this other person there. And, and I see this marketing all the time. There's so much marketing out there and especially to artists. This is, this is big with artists. You're going to see tons of people who are going to be like, do my program and make six figures or make seven figures or make this or make that because they know that there are tons of people out there who are artists who are thinking I need to make more money (laughs) because they know like that's going to be like the lowest hanging fruit. But the fact of the matter is 
there are tons of people who that part of things doesn't matter to them. So it's like, what is it that matters? So let's go back to the photo book example. You can go to somebody and say, I'm going to do a photo book and this is how much it's going to cost. And here's all the value that it is. And here's how talented I am. And like all these different types of things. But if what matters to them is building new relationships, then they're not going to do anything with that. So you could take that same photo book concept and say, hey, listen, I'm working on this photo book. I know that you have had a lot of interest in getting to know, let's say, musicians. So I'm going to host a dinner with 10 of your favorite musicians, top people. I already have relationships with them. They're happy, you know, they're they're happy to help. And after the dinner, we're going to create a photo book that you can give to your friends. Mm. And the whole experience is going to be $10,000, $25,000. Right. Ooh. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. So it's just thinking about like, what is it that matters to the other person and where do they see the value? So often, like when people ask me about selling, because that's a big topic that comes up, right? I always tell them that your absolute worst clients have conversations with you around price. Your absolute best clients have conversations with you around value. So the Mm. second that somebody starts a conversation with how much is it going to cost, you already know that it's going to be a pain in the butt. Right. Whereas if somebody says, this is what I'm trying to do. Do you think you can help me with that? And you're able to walk them through how you're going to make their life better. Then once you get to the pricing point, it's just a matter of them deciding, okay, does that fit with what I perceive as the value right. of this particular experience? And then the other thing, and this is something that we often forget about. Every industry has an income ceiling and an understanding ceiling. So the income ceiling is every industry has the top paid person. Right. And that top paid person, in essence, sets the bar for how much everybody else could potentially be paid. Right. But if you go to a different industry, the top paid person may get way less or may get way, way more because money is not seen in the same way in that particular industry. Interesting. So... I could work with a series of a group of artists, right? And I could do some kind of course or program for those artists. And maybe I teach them something. And let's say that the growth level for them is that they go from selling their thing for for like 300 to maybe they sell it for 1,000, right? I could go to that same, I could teach the same workshop to a group of VCs, And I teach them the same kinds of concepts, but they end up securing three or four investors to build a fund for 5 million. Wow. How do they look at the value of that experience? How do they look at what they'd be willing to pay? All of those different types of things. Yeah. So most of it's creating the value for the right clients. Exactly. And helping them understand it. And then the understanding ceiling is another one that pops up a lot. Every industry has its own jargon. Yeah. So if 
I'm in the theater world. Everybody who's listening, who's in the theater world knows what off book means. But if you're not in the theater world, you have no idea. I couldn't tell you what it was. Right. (laughs) So it means when an actor is able to no longer use the script and they've memorized their lines. Uh, Okay. Interesting. Right. So the thing is in the theater world, that understanding ceiling is, is very, very low. Like everybody knows the same jargon, but we get out of the theater world and that understanding ceiling is super, super high. Like people are like, I, I have no idea. Like where is all of that stuff? Right, right. 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 So, so the thing is if you're dealing with that, right. And you come to another industry and you introduce them to those ideas in many cases, you may be completely blowing their minds. And in many cases, they may spend way more money on whatever that offer is than what seems common in your, you know, in your industry. And to tie it back to Broadway, if I went and went to a gathering of Broadway producers and I was another Broadway producer, basically all the conversation would be would be around what shows are you on right now? What are your current projects? It would be this like measuring kind of scenario, right? Yeah. But I go to a meeting of Wall Street people or hedge fund managers and I say I'm a Broadway producer and I'm fascinating to right. those people. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and I always say this to artists because I think this is probably one of the most important things for any artist to think about which is you need to always focus on going where you're awesome, not where you're ordinary. Wow. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And I can kind of see, I totally see what you're saying is in that, in that sense. It's like, if you're, if you're in a group of people that don't do what you do, or it's, it's so much more interesting to talk about so many different stories to tell, but then like you're in a group of, like-minded or like uh, like career people you're like okay yeah what are you working on Uh, yep cool exactly and it's so funny because one of the things i talk about a lot is the idea of formulas versus frameworks right and in the world of personal development there are tons of formulas the the six step process to you know starting your online course the you know yep. the the three things that you must say if you want somebody to agree to work with you like all these different types of things and the problem is that somebody's formula worked for them it's not necessarily going to work for you right in any in some cases in the same way in some cases in any way right whereas with frameworks you're basically helping people just sort of think differently about a particular idea. You're not saying say it this way Mm. or do it this way. Very interesting. And when you are the type of person who has frameworks, people remember you more and you're much more likely to be successful by focusing on frameworks than you are on formulas. Because if you're focusing on formulas, you're going to spend all of your time just basically focusing on what type of process do I have to follow, right? Like you're going to yeah. try to do everything to the letter because you think that's how it's how you're going to be more successful. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is you're just going to come off as a knockoff of whoever taught that formula. Right, 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 right. And, and in the personal development world, I see this a lot where <laughs> in essence, somebody will introduce themselves to me 
and they'll do their, you know, I do this for this group and da, 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 and all this stuff. And it's just like, I've heard that before. Yeah. I've heard that way of saying it. I've heard that structure of saying it. Yeah. So then it's like you go into a different industry that's not part of that world. And those people are like, uh, yeah, whatever. Right. They like, they're not, <laughs> they're not interested in this like polished, you know, like fun little way that you've come up with to tell people, you know, about what you do. Yeah. So it's really, really important to take the time to really start to think about whatever you're learning. It's not a like strict, you absolutely have to do it this way because that's one of the most dangerous things that you can, you can end up with, especially yeah. as an artist. Yeah. And artists get this all the time because they're approached from the the money angle all the time. Right. But the thing is, as an artist, the thing that in essence is like is your major value is your creativity. Mm. It's your ability to think differently. Whatever the art is that you, you know, the, the art is that you make it comes from a place of you being able to see something that nobody else can see. And I often tell people when they ask me about asking, one of the things I often will say is if you ask directly, if you say to somebody, can you do this for me? It's simply a yes or no. But if you ask somebody, I'm trying to solve this problem. Do you have any ideas? Then it can't just be a yes or no. Right. The person has to think and come up with ideas for you. And it comes down to this idea that you limit the things you get in life when you limit other people's creativity. Mm. You don't allow somebody to be creative. They yeah. can just say yes or no. So as an artist, it's not about you sitting there and being like, okay, how do I make sure that people love my art? It's about how can I bring the same level of creativity that I use to create my art to how I speak with people. Oh, interesting. Because once they can see, wow, this is a different value and this is a different type of type of person. This isn't somebody who's just trying to sell me on how good their stuff is. Yeah. It opens the door for you to just to not be like everybody else who is trying to just say I'm good enough. You're already good enough. That's yeah. and and that's the thing. I, I I meet a lot of actors and writers and and producers who they'll say to me, "I want to reach out to this person, but I feel like I have nothing to offer." And I always stop them there. And I say, "You always have something to offer because you have no idea what problems that other person has." You have no idea what that person needs right now. Yeah. And in some cases, they just need to read a funny subject line. In some cases, yeah. they just need to hear something that's a little that's a little different, that's a little off the beaten path. In some cases, they have a desire to give back and they want to have a conversation with somebody who's trying to learn and trying, you know, and and trying to develop. But I think there's been so much there's been so much out there about if you reach out to these people, they'll ignore you. If you do this, this, and this, that you get a bunch of people who are just like, well, they'll just ignore me. And then they never try. Yeah. yeah. And no, not everybody will ignore you. 
Like I, I understand that that is a big thing that a lot of people when they're talking about like meeting influencers and connecting with influencers come up with where they're like, Oh, but you know, like you have to come up with this like really great way of, of reaching out to them. And that's important, but you can't even get to that way. You can't even experiment with that way if you never try. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what, now what would you, I guess, you know, going back to the TCM index, like yeah. how would you utilize that to approach people, A, before you even know them, like how do you, maybe there's a way to find out what their TCM is and approach them with some sort of value add sure. based off of that first off. So it's like, yeah, I guess let's talk that. Yeah. So I was thinking about this the other day. There are a lot of people who are seen in this kind of thought leader influencer space and they end up with these massive followings and there are periods in which they basically are just doing the work, right? So they're really busy. They're in the middle of a launch. They've got this, they've got that, you know, they've got all of these different things going on. So they're not really in a connection mode, Mm. right? So if you know that somebody is about to launch a program or they're you know, their concerts about to start or whatever it is, that's not the time to reach out to them. Yeah. Conversely, if they are about to put out their next book, if they are about to start a new program, if they are about to do something that basically is going to need some kind of press, they're way more open to hitting as many, many points as they possibly can. So your favorite author right now may not be very accessible or may not respond or, or to your podcast request, et cetera. But if they have a book coming out within the next year, there is a very good chance that they're going to be open to even more podcast conversations and all these different, all these different types of things. So you start to see, Oh, that's the thing, right? If you know that somebody's really, really busy and you can tell sort of from their scenario that they probably wouldn't meet with you and it's a time scenario, then what you can do is you can think about, well, what could you do that would give them the opportunity to leverage their time as opposed to trade it? So in some cases, being on an interview is a way to leverage your time because you're creating content that then you get to keep yeah, and that you get to share with your, you know, with an audience and, and all of those different types of things. Yeah. But same thing goes for sitting on a panel. So big problem that happens when people are doing readings for Broadway shows. And basically the way it works is you do a reading and the idea is you invite producers and investors to come to see that reading. And the idea is that those people see that reading and want to do something with that project. Biggest problem, you spend a good amount of time getting things together. You reach out to a lot of people. You try to get them there. And the morning of your big presentation, 50 emails come into your inbox telling you, sorry, I can't make it today. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to send my assistant. I'm not sure, et cetera. And in many cases, you do all of that work and no producers show up. So how do you solve a problem like that? Well, what I used to do is I would say, we're going to do this presentation and we're going to have a panel afterwards. 
Yeah. And as a producer, I'm wondering if you'd want to sit on the panel. And because you're a producer and you spend a lot of money in finance, I'm going to seat you next to my friend who runs a hedge fund. And we're going to talk about sort of the, the, you know, the value of the show, the ideas of the show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what happens is now this person's leveraging their time and they're getting the opportunity to possibly meet other people who could help them with their project. So if they say no to sitting in the audience, it's an easy no. But if they say no to sitting on a panel, it means they're disappointing all of the other people on that panel and they're showing something to the public about their level of credibility. Right. Oh, interesting. So when you notice that somebody seems like they just would never kind of connect with you one-to-one or they just don't seem like they have a lot of time, creating a leveraged experience for them can sometimes be the thing that gets them to come. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, let's jump into becoming or being memorable. Yeah. And so let's start like what makes a brand or a person memorable? Sure. So basically the way I've broken it down is that there are three things that you have to, that you have to focus on. And it's easy to remember because it spells the word aim Yeah. and it's accessibility, influence, and memory. So we'll start with accessibility. Accessibility is something that a lot of us fall down on because we make the decision very, very early on as to what the value is that we have to offer. And then we try to convince other people of that value. Right. When really what we need to do is we need to look at what are those main things that we're doing for other people. And I tell anybody that's starting a business this. I say you want to do at least one of three things and ideally all three. And it's easy to remember because if you don't do at least one of these three things, you'll be sad. S-A-D. <laughs> solve a problem alleviate pain, decrease friction. Mm. So from an accessibility standpoint, you have to first answer the question, what problem am I solving? And not the problem that you think you're solving for somebody. Because most of the time we think, oh, I'm solving this problem for them. They need, you know, they need photos, you know, they need photos for their thing. But that may not be the problem. Getting the photos is something, it solves a different problem for them. And we don't know what that problem is until we start to have conversations about what are the common problems that people have. Yeah. Right. So it's always starting from the angle of like, well, what problem am I actually solving for people and talking to people? Like if you've worked with a client, it's like, okay, what did this do for you? Why did you come to me in the first place? And so often they'll say something to you that you're just like, wow, I never thought that that really mattered. Yeah. I never thought that that was going to be, you know, something that people found valuable or would pay for. Right. Then alleviating pain, we very rarely take the time to think about what is the pain that somebody's in because of the fact that they haven't fixed whatever this this issue is. Yeah. And talking to people about that pain, understanding that pain. Yeah. It it starts to create a much, much clearer picture of the offer that we create. And then decreasing friction basically means if we are able to take something that normally would take, let's say five weeks, and we're able to decrease that amount of time. Yeah. 
So decreasing friction is how Netflix beat Blockbuster. Because Blockbuster, for those of you who still remember, um, Blockbuster had this dynamic of friction of you had to return the video. You had the late fee. There was a limited supply. There were all these things that caused you frustration. Right. Right. Netflix came in and took away the frustration. Ooh. Took away the late fee. Took away the 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 walk that you had to take to drop it off in that little box. Yeah. Like gave you the opportunity to find things and your stuff was always available. Like you didn't walk all the way to the store and and pull like open up that VHS and find out the damn thing wasn't there. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. and that was so frustrating for people. So so often we we don't take the time to think about how is what we're doing really taking that friction away right and making it easier for somebody to just accomplish something that they want to that they want to accomplish and what's really interesting is the more that you dig into it the more that you find in each of these areas you have so many ways to sell the thing that you have yeah and most of us don't really take the time to think about it from that accessibility standpoint. Yeah. And the other side is this, you know, the TCM side, right? If somebody cares about time, they, they want it done fast. They want it done right away. They want it done as quickly as possible. They don't really care about how much it's going to cost. If somebody cares about cost and that's their biggest issue, then any conversation about how quickly you can do it or who you're connected to and what you can, you know, what you can do doesn't matter to them because they just care about how much it's going to be. Yeah. Right. And if connections is their most important thing, it's not about working with you. It's not about, it's, it's about who you're connected to. It's about what it does for them. Right. So you have to figure out, where that matters for people in order to be accessible. Yeah. And most of the time what we do is we try to come up with all of it ourselves. So we create this massive barrier for 90% of people to buy from us. Yeah. Because every if everybody feels like an outsider when they're looking at your product, they're not going to search any deeper. Right. And there was a really, really interesting story about accessibility that was in the book Power of Habit that I really, really love. And basically it was about the song Hey Ya by Outkast. And what a lot of people don't know is that when that song first came on the radio, people turned it off within the first couple of seconds. Yeah. And the reason was that the song was too new. Mm. It had a sound that was just so different from everything else that was out there. Yeah. So what they discovered was that when we hear something and we hear artists where their songs kind of sound almost all the same, what happens is we listen all the way through because we're comfortable. So what they did, and this was genius, they started with a Celine Dion song, plugged Hey Ya in the middle, and then (laughs) put like Maroon 5 afterwards. Oh, interesting. And what happened was over time, what ended up happening was 
people started to get so used to the sound they wouldn't cl- they they wouldn't turn it off that the unfamiliar became familiar and ah. this is what we have to do from an accessibility standpoint we always have to find our Celine. like we have to figure out what is that thing yep. that everybody's going to listen to and pay attention to and understand and that's that's what's going to get us in the door to be able to do that wild and crazy thing because the beginning of an audience's journey with us starts with fight or flight. Right. It starts with can they trust us? And if we come off as too new or too different or or too esoteric for them, we're done. Right. We're absolutely done. So then influence is the next is the next thing that you you want to think about. Yeah. And influence ties to what are you building in to your material to make it so that people want to engage with you and want to do work with you. Yeah. So there are tons of different things that influence us. We we are influenced every day. And if you if you ever want to look at how you're influenced, just take the time to go through your week and write down all the things that you buy without thinking. Mm. Because there are all of these elements that cause us to buy things without like to make it almost automatic. So there are a number of principles and they've been described at length in lots of different books. Probably the most useful is uh, Robert Cialdini's book influence yeah. where he breaks down all the different, he calls them weapons of influence, right. but things like scarcity, the idea that there are only so many of something right. often gets us to be like, Oh, I want to get that sort of right, you know, sort of right away. Right. Yep. The idea of social proof where basically if somebody we trust or, or somebody that we've seen has worked on something before and we know like, okay, this person's solid, we'll trust often whoever else is connected to that particular, you know, to that particular yeah. thing. Right. So, so the interesting thing about all of this is that because advertising has consistently evolved and because the market becomes more sophisticated kind of as we go along, we can't use the formulas of influence, right? We can't just copy somebody's sales page right. or copy the way that somebody describes something and be like, okay, now I'm going to make millions or now everybody's going to want to talk to me. We can only look at the frameworks and then say, okay, how do I incorporate that in my own work? How do I build elements of influence into the work that I'm doing? Right. And that also ties to your network and the circle that you have. So you can create a lot more influence if you have a diversified network. Mm. Because if you're the type of person who's a resource as opposed to just a service provider, people come to you. Right. Right. Because if somebody can hire you for one thing, you may be great at that thing, but they come to you and ask for something else or they need help with something else and you can't introduce them to anybody to help solve that problem. Then you are just competing with everybody else who does that thing. Yeah. But if you're the person who they come to and they say, Hey, I really need help with this. And you're like, Oh, well, I know somebody who can. And you make that introduction, you make that connection. Now you're not only the person who does that service that they hired you for, but you're the person who knows people. Yep. And that is a much, much more influential place mm. to be. 
And a lot of us forget about that, the power of that. Yeah, having a strong Rolodex. Exactly. And also the diversity of it. Because going back to the, you know, going where you're awesome, not where you're ordinary, your whatever you're selling right now, maybe you're selling to people who the market's too sophisticated and they're going to question every single element of it. And you go to a market that doesn't really know it and has never even heard of what you do. Yeah. Those people are going to be more trusting. They're going to be more interested in kind of learning more about it, figuring out how it applies to them. There's going to be so much more opportunity there. And this was addressed in the book uh, Blue Ocean Strategy, where they talk about the idea of this sort of red, bloody ocean of everybody kind of going for the same client. And then there's the idea of the blue ocean where you go for a client that almost nobody else is going for. Right. Right. right? Nobody else is thinking about. My favorite story from that is uh, Yellowtail Wine. Do you know about this one? I'm not sure. I think I heard something about it. So this is a really interesting one. So around the time that Yellowtail Wine kind of started their business, wine was always considered a very, very stodgy, like older drink. Right. There was there was all of this pressure on like, you know, did you understand the type of wine? Did you know how to like do the little sniff thing with the glass? Like all like what kind of berries and like all of this other stuff. So the thing was, most of the people who were buying it were older. So what they did was they said, okay, well, who's not buying wine and who wasn't buying wine? College kids. Yeah. Because college kids, A didn't want to spend a boatload of money on <laughs> wine, right? Yeah. And B did not care which berry it was or, or which grade it was or any of those types of things. Cause they just, they wanted it for one particular purpose, right? right. For their parties. Yep. So what yellowtail did was yellowtail got rid of all of the choices and it was just red or white and they made it <laughs> super, super cheap. And that's how they took off. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like when we're stuck, when we're in a place where it's like, no money's coming in. We're having problems, you know, et cetera. We can't keep trying to convince the market that it's time to buy from us. Yeah. We have to ask ourselves, do we need to change what it is that they're buying from us? Do we need to change who we're selling to? Do we need to change the way of of sort of how we're selling it? Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, when there are problems, you you look for the variables. Yep. And when I used to do these workshops, the title that I gave to this uh, networking workshop that I did was I called it Solving for X. And I called it Solving for X because it was always about this aspect of when you go through this process of getting to know people, there's a variable in terms of what's most valuable to them and what's most useful for them. Yeah. So it really is solving for X. It's figuring out this, this unknown that you just like, can't quite, you know, can't quite get. So anytime you're in dire straits, anytime you're like, Oh my God, how do I, how do I make the rent? How do I solve this problem? How do I solve that problem? It's not about working harder. It's looking at all the variables. And then once you've found a variable that you can test, really working hard at that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I see too many people. I call it, I like to refer to it as boxer syndrome. Right. If you ever read the book, uh, animal farm, there's the horse boxer and boxers answer is always I'll work harder. 
And eventually boxer works himself to death and artists fall into this category a lot where it's like, I'll just do more. I'll get more clients. I'll work harder. I'll do, you know, all these different types of things. And the problem is if you're always just trying to work harder and you're never testing any variables, you could spend the rest of your life working ridiculously hard and not getting any, any results. Yeah. Just because you think that it's just about how hard you're working or how much you're hustling or any of those different, different types of things. And the thing is, think about it as lanes on the highway. If you were riding on the highway and you got stuck behind a car, would you just ride behind that car or would you <laughs> change lanes? Right. And there's so much opportunity in changing lanes and there's so much that people can do yeah. you know, in that. So with influence, it's all about thinking about those variables, thinking about new ways that you can use those ideas and those concepts. And then the last is memory. Uh. And the interesting thing about memory is that we have anchors for ourselves in terms of how we remember things. So in this room, there are items that if you look at that item, literally tons of ideas and memories from past experiences are going to explode in your mind. Yeah. Because you're going to remember, you know, what that teacup meant or what that, that stand means, like all these different types of things. So the thing is, every single person has those anchors. So when we build anchors into the material and mm. we trigger memories in other people, they start to associate us with those memories. They start to share those memories. They start to talk about us with those memories. So for example, I could write an article and I could just write it to, you know, I could be like how to be more memorable, right? But if I took, if rather than taking that title and I said, I'll take today's, I read a daily email. Today's d daily email was why Ryan Reynolds is winning. Yeah. That's just funny. I, I read it and I was like, I was going to talk about that because I love Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And, and yeah. So, so the thing is, that's what happens, right? You have a relationship to Ryan Reynolds. So if I had said, so if my title was, you know, how to be memorable, there would be very little reason for you to open that email. And you wouldn't remember that I wrote that email. Yeah. But you do remember because you remember Ryan Reynolds. You might have read the read the email and sort of seen kind of the the idea or the concept behind it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And all of those triggers are part of things. Yeah. And I've seen the aviation gin commercial, which is brilliant. Yes. So, <laughs> so good. Absolutely incredible. And and that's the thing. So, you know, when you start to dig into a lot of these ideas and you help people start to remember other things, they remember you. Mm. The other thing is because not only objects and, and people sort of hold memories for us, but there are devices, like there are mnemonic devices that we use to remember things. Mm -hmm. So throughout this interview, there are a lot of people who after listening to this will remember solve a problem, alleviate pain, decrease friction. Yep. And they'll remember it because they remember sad. Yep. And same thing with TCM index, all of these different, different ideas. When you give people something simple to be able to remember your ideas or your concepts by, they will want to share it. Yeah. 
But the mistake that most people make when it comes to memory is they give us way too much and try to get us to remember it all. Yeah. And everybody's going to take their own thing away. But you want to have something that people will always remember about you. Now, here's the thing. Once you start layering those things on, all of a sudden, people want to talk about you. Hmm. Because if you're accessible and they're like, wow, that's really, really interesting. If there are elements of influence that are causing them to just like remember you and think about you. And if you have something that you've already put together that's super easy to remember, they're going to be at a cocktail party and they're going to tell their friends about that concept that came through. Right. And it's the same. It's like I use memory devices in, in quotes. Right. So go where you're awesome, not where you're ordinary uses the influence concept of contrast, where if something is contrasting, you will remember it more. Right. Right. So when I take those two things and I just put them side by side, it instantly triggers something in people's minds and they'll remember that particular point. I love that. So we are just constantly when, if we want to be memorable, if we want our stuff to be referable, it's about thinking about how do we layer these ideas together. And, and the, the interesting thing, I did a talk years and years and years ago. And it was, I think the title of it was called If There Is Hope, It Lies in the Artists. And it was based on, I was still teaching English at the time. And it was based on the fact I had been teaching 1984. And when I was doing this talk, it was the very, very early days of social media. So there was, I think Twitter was, was there. I think, you know, Facebook was, was sort of like in its early stages, like all these different types of things. But one of the things I talked about was to that group was like 1984 is happening right now, like around (laughs) all of you. Like this is like really happening. And there's a point where Winston's writing in his diary and he says, if it is, if there is hope, it lies in the proles. And he talks about these people who basically like they're all kind of it's just this mass of people who have kind of followed along and done everything, you know, the way that the, you know, they, they've followed along yeah. with big brother and all this stuff. And he's like, if they just did something like it could, it could change everything. Yeah. So what I did was I talked about the fact that artists often put themselves in the place of the starving artist or the lower level, you know, individual, because when you look at media, and even even any kind of movie or presentation, like the story is always like a hero's journey story, right? Of like the 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 artist who is like you know on the street, like getting the you know getting the coins, and then somebody discovers them and they make all this <laughs> money, and you know then you know so you have all these artists who think, okay, that world is kind of where you know where I need to you know where I need to be, and I need to work my way up, and like all these different types of things. Yeah. But the thing is. Artists have a completely different level of creativity that is sorely needed in our world. And your ability to come up with a way to paint something or your ability to come up with a way to shoot something, that part of your brain is the same part of your brain that you can go in and look at somebody's business model and tell them what's wrong. Yeah. And most of the time we just don't think about that because we don't think, oh my God, there, you know, there are other ways to use my gifts. Yeah. So what I was telling this group was that basically 
tons of people get frustrated and throw things on the ground once they're frustrated. <laughs> and, you know, you'll like if you walk around the world, there are people who have discarded things because they, quote, didn't work. Right. Yeah. And they're like, so the, the thing is, artists can pick up these broken things and turn them into things like the iPhone. Right. And like, that's, that's something that we often forget about. Yeah. And when you're an artist, your ability to be that creative is an ability that a lot of other people don't have. Right. Or haven't cultivated. So it's not just about using the, that creativity to create something and then hope that somebody else finds value in it. It's using that creativity to create the life that you want to live. Yeah, it really is. Absolutely. That's what I've been, been all about the last however many years of my career is really creating that life that I want to live. And, you know, a big part of it is the podcast is kind of distilling how that works and, yeah. and sharing that with other people. So a couple, a couple of quick questions before we wrap up here. Yeah. I want to, I, I know you have a, a course coming out around framework. Uh, yes. tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So basically I did this workshop where I dug into the accessibility influence and memory side of things. I did it as like a four hour thing where I was just like, okay, let me just see kind of what people think of it. And what ended up happening was after that workshop was finished, everybody came up to me and were saying we need way more time to, <laughs> to work on these ideas. Like yeah. I give them a worksheet at the beginning that I gave them maybe 10 minutes to work on. And they were like, I'm going to work on this worksheet for like weeks. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so note taken. So what I've decided to do is put together a two day intensive. Oh, cool. And the idea is to give people the time to actually build their own frameworks. Because often we don't take the time to look at our own patterns and, and our own ideas and figure out how would we actually package them. Yeah. So we're going to use the ideas of accessibility, influence, and memory. I'm going to cover a lot of those things. I'm going to do a lot of activities. But over the course of the weekend, the plan is to have the participants work on developing their own frameworks that they can walk away with. This is something that they could write a book about. Or this is something that if they wanted to do a TED Talk about or a presentation about. And really yeah. take their ideas and turn them into something that is accessible, influential, and memorable. Amazing. Thanks. Sounds like an amazing course. Thank you. I have to take it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One question I love to ask everyone, all my guests is, what does the phrase live inspiration mean to you? Mm. I think it means live with curiosity. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Great answer. And then finally, where can people follow you, find you on the interwebs? Sure. So my website is smallpondenterprises.com. Yep. And there's a link to the podcast that I host called Access to Anyone on cool. there as well. And if they go on those sites, there's a download that basically is called Hang With Your Heroes, which breaks down some of the things that we talked about in terms of reaching out to reaching out to people. Great. And they get an invite to be on my daily list, where basically I send a daily email giving uh, a lot of these thoughts, kind of breaking down a lot of these ideas. Nice. Nice. Any Instagram socials, anything like that? Uh, I am on the book of faces. I do not do Instagram. I am on Twitter and uh -huh. I'm just at Michael Roderick on Twitter. And on Facebook, I'm Mike Roderick as opposed to, as opposed to Michael, because there was a whole hacking thing that happened a while back. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love that. Yeah. 
Well, uh, again, thanks for coming on. Learned so much. This was this was amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode of Neon Radio. I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love it if you could help me out by leaving a good review over on Apple Podcast, sharing the episode out over on social media. You can do that with the link neonradio.com slash EP152. And don't forget to join the community over at neonlife.com slash community. And also, if you haven't done it, go take the Neon Life quiz over at neonlife.com slash quiz. Take the 10 question quiz and we'll serve you up some free content to help you out in your creative journey wherever you're at. So with that, you know what time it is. It's time to go out and create your life by creating every small moment and we'll see you next time. Bye.